What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 168. This episode is entitled That Time When Australia Threatened to Hold Frank Sinatra Hostage. Isaac Newton didn't believe in magic, but he did believe in the Philosopher's Stone, a legendary concoction that could turn lead to gold. In Newton's time, chemistry had not been developed, and alchemy was a perfectly respectable pursuit for a scientist. Newton was a devotee and studied the combination of strange substances as avidly as he did physics. From the Atlas Obscura, com website. A story by Sarah Lasco. Found. Isaac Newton's recipe for the Philosopher's Stone. Recently the Chemical Heritage Foundation acquired a document that showed just how deep he got into alchemy. The document includes Newton's handwritten copy of a recipe for sophic mercury, the key ingredient to the Philosopher's Stone. The recipe for preparation of mercury for the stone came from George Starkey, a Harvard scientist and leading alchemist. As the Washington Post notes, Newton probably had access to this recipe before Starkey published it. He was in the inner circle of alchemists. Newton lived from 1642 to 1727. The discovery of elements and gases like hydrogen and carbon dioxide and the theory of atoms came decades after his death. Alchemy wasn't all bad. Around the time of Newton's death, scientists started making a distinction between chemistry, basically the useful scientific threads of mixing chemicals together, and alchemy, the more mystical parts. Alchemy naturally got the turning lead into gold part of the practice. They never did figure out how to make that one work. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 168 of the Origins podcast and click on the picture there, you can have a look at the notes that Isaac Newton made regarding this topic. 
And also from the atlasobscura.com website, I do find this site quite interesting for its unusual stories. Missouri's Great Escaped Snake Scare of 1953. And this is by Thomas Gownley. In 1953, Springfield, Missouri was a city of about 65,000 people. And at least 11 escaped Indian cobras slithered loose on the streets. Between August and October, at least 11 of the snakes were either killed or captured in Springfield, much to the alarm of residents, many of whom fought back with a common gardening tool. While a local pet shop was always suspected to be the source of the snakes, its owner denied any involvement. It would be 35 years until the person who set the reptiles free came forward. The first cobra was spotted in a yard on August 15. The homeowner quickly killed it with his garden hoe. A week later, the same thing happened across the street. The police were called, and a local science teacher identified the species, native to a region thousands of miles away. The police visited Maura Animal Company, the pet shop a block away. Rio Maura acknowledged he kept cobras, but said none had escaped. As the weeks progressed, however, snakes kept appearing. The third in a yard was also dispatched with a hoe. The fourth on a roadway was run over repeatedly with a car. The fifth appeared in a woman's garage, where she happened to keep her hoe. The sixth was captured by Maurer himself near the shop. The seventh cobra prompted the greatest response. A man saw it disappear beneath his house and called the police. The chief arrived with a homemade snake catcher, a rope noose attached to a ten-foot pole. When it proved of little value, police threw a tear gas grenade under the house. The cobra came out and was hit by five slugs from an officer's pistol. But the reptile wasn't quite dead, so the police got a garden hoe. Maura himself was ordered to move his animals outside the city limits. Anti-venom was shipped in, the eighth cobra was crushed by a rock. The ninth again met a hoe. The city's health director drove a truck around blaring so-called snake-charming music. The tenth snake was killed that same day. Maurer denied involvement in the great snake escape up until his death in the 1970s, and locals assumed the chance of learning what really happened had passed with him. Then in 1988, a man named Carl Barnett made a shocking statement in the Springfield News Leader. I'm the one that done it. Barnett had been 14-year-old when the cobras appeared. After 35 years, he said a friend had convinced him the community deserved an explanation, and an attorney had assured him he would not be charged. Barnett told the newspaper that Maura gave him an exotic fish in early August 1953 as part of a trade. But the fish died the first night Barnett brought it home, so he went back to complain. He was just ugly about the deal and told me, that's tough kid, get lost, Barnett recalled in the news leader. Leaving the shop, Barnett saw a crate of snakes out back and assumed they were harmless. He released them and figured he and the shop were even. When the cobras began appearing, Barnett recalled, I realised what I'd done, and I was scared to death. Every time someone mentioned the cobras, I just wilted. 
The 11th snake was captured on October 25, 1953 and taken to the local zoo. It died there two months later. For a while, residents feared more snakes would appear, but this was to be the last of the escaped snakes. The cobra scare was history. And from the jalopnik.com website, an article by Alanis King. How traffic lights came to be, and why green means go. And this is from their Holy Shift section. Welcome to Holy Shift, where we highlight big innovations in the auto and racing industries each week, whether they be necessary or simply for comfort. When approaching a modern-day intersection, we as drivers don't need much direction in order to know what to do. We simply see a colour, red, yellow or green, and act accordingly. But the meanings of those colours weren't always so universally known, and the story of how they became so is a bit of an odd one. For the sake of simplicity, we'll keep this post about the three common colours on traffic lights, red, yellow and green rather than including the fancy extra signals we sometimes see these days. Electric traffic signals actually had a 100-year anniversary just two years ago. According to history, the device was widely accepted as the world's first electric signal to be installed when it went up at the intersection of Euclid Avenue and East 105th Street in Cleveland, Ohio in 1914. But that wasn't the first attempt at a signal and the idea had quite a few roadblocks before and after its installation. Bad pun, yes. The world's first non-electric traffic signal came nearly 50 years prior, in 1868, when London adopted one near Parliament in order to make pedestrian crossings safer. As horse-drawn traffic increased in the 1800s, roads additionally needed a method by which to flow more smoothly. This is from the International Business Times. The system installed, a semaphore, involved a tall post with movable arms. When the arms were positioned sideways, it meant stop. After dark, a gas light was lit at the top. The green-tinted lens meant go, while red meant stop. Police officers operated the signals manually and changed them in accordance with the observed traffic flow 
blowing a whistle in order to warn street traffic of when the signal would change. Apparently the method was a big success in those parts, that is, until it exploded. The explosion came soon after its installation, resulting from a gas leak in 1869. The officer operating the light at the time sustained injuries from the incident and London officials dropped the semaphore project soon after. Just as the ones in London did, early signals in the US had manually operated systems with red and green lights. It was 1920, four years after the first electric system went in, when Detroit police officer William Potts introduced the three colour scheme we all know so well. While we can only assume that earlier light colours came by the same reasoning, Potts based his colour choices on railroad signals. But the original lineup for railroad signals included white, green and red, according to the book Railroad Signalling. Rather than signalling all clear, as it does on the modern roads, green signalled caution, while white signalled clear. Red, as it does today, meant to stop. Having a white light to signal all clear makes perfect sense on paper. More sense than green, even. But it caused plenty of disastrous and fatal problems. Railroad officials began to do away with the white light to signal a clear path as early as 1899, as a volume of railroad and locomotive engineering from that year attributed the lack of colour to wrecks and confusion. The red discs used to tint the lights often broke, leaving the warning to shine white, all clear, when its intention was for the train to stop altogether due to danger ahead. Railroad and locomotive engineering noted that conductors also mistook the white lights when intended to be white for other signals and vice versa. It's easy to see why. Whereas a coloured signal is unnatural against the night sky and a dark landscape, white could blend in with anything from the moon to a lantern. For that reason, officials sought to rid the railroad industry of the white signal altogether. In doing so, green came to mean go and red stayed as stop. The railroad officials added a yellow as the cautionary middle child and conductors could understand from then on that white meant the colour disc covering the light was not intact. Therefore, proceed with caution, or simply stop. Those colours then made their way onto roads, illuminating the 1920s traffic signal and all of its successes in some variation of red, yellow and green as the years went on. Here, nearly 100 years later, we don't even have to think about the meanings of the three. So next time you need to kill a bit of time at that long stoplight in town, you won't have to look far to find trivial material. Just make sure that the driver keeps his or her eyes on the lights, too. The next time you are talking to someone or listening to someone and you sigh and you get into trouble, like I often do from my wife, tell them about this article.
Sighing is actually a life-saving reflex, and scientists have found the switch that controls it. And this is from the sciencealert.com website, and it's written by Fiona MacDonald. And the subtitle is, Here's Why We All Need to Be Sighing 12 Times an Hour. Oh dear. Remember all those times your parents told you it was rude to sigh? Well, you can discount the advice entirely, because sighing's actually a crucial reflex that keeps our lungs healthy, and researchers have just uncovered the switch in our brain that controls it. The team identified two tiny clusters of neurons in the brainstem that automatically turn normal breaths into sighs, when our lungs need some extra help. And they do this roughly every five minutes, or 12 times an hour, regardless of whether or not you're thinking about something depressing. Unlike a pacemaker that regulates only how fast we breathe, the brain's breathing centre also controls the type of breath we take, said one of the researchers, Mark Krasnow, from Stanford University School of Medicine. It's made up of small numbers of different kinds of neurons, Each functions like a button that turns on a different type of breath, he explains. One button programs regular breaths, another sighs, and the others could be for yawns, sniffs, coughs, and maybe even laughs and cries. The team has now been able to identify for the first time the sigh button, and it's surprisingly simple, bypassing our conscious brain altogether which in biology suggests it's one of the most crucial reflexes, just like flight or fight. Sighing appears to be regulated by the fewest number of neurons we've seen linked to a fundamental human behaviour, said one of the researchers, Jack Feldman, from the University of California, Los Angeles. So why is sighing so important? It turns out that without it, the tiny balloon-like sacs in our lungs, known as alveoli, can collapse and struggle to reinflate themselves. A sigh is a deep breath, but not a voluntary deep breath. It starts out as a normal breath, but before you exhale, you take a second breath on top of it, Feldman explains. When alveoli collapse, they compromise the ability of the lung to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. The only way to pop them open again is to sigh, which brings in twice the volume of a normal breath. This first became clear to scientists when patients started dying in the earliest iron lung devices, which didn't factor in providing people with these extra deep breaths, a design flaw that's since been fixed. If you don't sigh every five minutes or so, the alveoli will slowly collapse, causing lung failure, says Feldman. For most of us, that's not an issue. But for people who suffer conditions that stop them from breathing deeply, or at the other end of the spectrum, who sigh so often that it becomes debilitating, it's not so simple. Which is why it's so important to work out how the process is regulated. To do this, the team worked with lab mice, which sigh up to 40 times an hour. They screened more than 19,000 gene expression patterns in the animal's brain cells, and eventually honed in on 200 neurons that manufacture and release one of two neuropeptides. These neuropeptides were known to influence breathing in humans, 
but no one has been able to work out how. By studying the pathway in mice further, they found that the peptides stimulate a second set of 200 neurons, which then activated the mouse's breathing muscles to produce a (gasps) sigh. When the team increased the amount of peptide being produced, the mice started sighing 400 times an hour, instead of 40. Alternatively, they were able to stop the mice sighing altogether when they blocked the peptides. These molecular pathways are critical regulators of sighing and define the core of a sigh control circuit, says Krasnow. It may be possible to find drugs that target these pathways to control sighing. Further research is needed to confirm that this same pathway exists in humans, but the similarities in the mouse and human systems suggest we're on the right track. One thing still remains a mystery, however, is whether emotional sighing works the same way. There is certainly a component of sighing that relates to an emotional state. When you are stressed, for example, you sigh more, said Feldman. It may be that neurons in the brain areas that process emotion are triggering the release of the psi neuropeptides. But we don't know that. We'll have to wait for an answer to that question. But in the meantime, don't feel bad about sighing to your heart's content. Your alveoli will thank you for it. (sighs) What a nice story. Among the narrow cobble sidewalks and winding canals of Venice's San Augustan neighbourhood is a pretty yellow palazzo, its balcony overflowing with pink astoria flowers. Amid the ornate windows and lush flower boxes, it's easy to miss a small plaque, carved in stone and written in formal Italian, commemorating one of the most important men in publishing history. This was the home of Aldus Manusius, says the plaque, and it was from here that the light of Greek letters returned to shine upon civilised peoples. From the smithsonianmag.com website. A story by Barbie Latsanadu. The man who changed reading forever. The palazzo, now divided into rental apartments and gift shops, is where Aldous forever changed printing, more than half a millennium ago. He introduced curved italic type, which replaced the cumbersome square gothic print used at the time, and helped standardise punctuation, defining the rules of use for the comma and semicolon. He also was the first to print small secular books that could be carried around for study and pleasure, the precursors to paperbacks and e-readers today. He was very much like the Steve Jobs of his era, says Sandro Berra, managing director of the Tipoteca Italiana Museum of Topography outside of Venice. He was ahead of his time, risking everything on an untested whim that somehow he knew would work. Fueling his risk-taking were fervent views on spreading knowledge to a broader audience. Before Aldous, books were extremely precious items, held in private collections or monasteries, inaccessible even to many scholars. 
what he wrought from the appearance of his first published book in 1493 until his death in 1515 was something akin to the first editorial boom, writes Helen Barolini in her biography, Aldous and His Dream Book. He made the book an accessible vehicle of thought and communication. Books, Aldous believed, provided an antidote to barbarous times and should not be hoarded by the privileged few. I do hope that, if there should be people of such spirit that they are fighting against the sharing of literature as a common good, that they may burst of envy, become worn out in wretchedness, or hang themselves, he wrote in the preface of one of his volumes. Aldous challenged received doctrine, and sometimes pressed the limits of what the powerful Roman Catholic Church would accept. He was the type who knew the difference between fearing God and fearing the Church, and he lived his life on that fine line, Bearer says. He also knew when to take a step back and reflect on what was important to his goals. He printed most of the Greek canon for the first time, and made secular literature portable but he also printed important letters of the early church fathers. In 1518, his heirs printed the first edition of the Greek Bible. The 500-year anniversary of his death is being celebrated in New York and Venice and other cities where books are cherished. Early in 2015, he was honoured with a far-reaching exhibition called Aldus Minutius, a legacy more lasting than bronze at the Grolier Club in Manhattan, where 150 of his antique volumes were on display. A series of memorial initiatives in Italy, where he is also known as Aldo Manuzio, included a full calendar of Manuzio 500 events in Venice, featuring readings and exhibits of his Libelli Portatilli's Latin for portable books, as well as demonstrations of the printing techniques he introduced. Aldus was a complicated man, his legacy is anchored in Venice. But he was born in a village south of Rome. He came of age shortly after the final demise of the Eastern Roman Empire, which had long been in decline, but fully collapsed after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans in 1453. He was a humanist, one of a small but growing number of scholars who studied ancient Greek and Latin texts at a time when most had all but given up on the classics and a pioneer in the wave of Renaissance thinkers which helped salvage and eventually spur a reawakening of the region's intellectual class. In 1490, at the age of 40, in what might have been a midlife crisis, he moved to Venice. The city was then a humming capital of commerce, open to outsiders with fresh ideas. It was also writhing with creative energy, as artists and intellectuals from elsewhere in Europe flocked to the canals for inspiration. Aldous opened his own publishing house, the Aldine Press. His first book, Constantine Lascari's Eratomata, was followed by more than 130 other titles, including works by both Aristotle and Theophrastus. Much of what made Venice a cultural hub in the 15th century remains intact today, albeit often hidden and protected from outsiders. It is possible to find a bar or cafe along a lonely canal where modern Venetians meet to share readings and discuss everything from theology to ancient history. Aldous's Venice is still there, says Berra, but the Venetians keep it to themselves, far away from the tourists. 
Yet the purple sunsets and elegant palazzi along the Grand Canal haven't changed much since Aldous's time, and those remain open to all. The techniques Aldous introduced were quickly copied across Italy, and later more broadly around Europe, with little credit given to their original printer. In 1502, when he printed Dante's Divine Comedy, he introduced to the Aldine Press the emblem of a dolphin wrapped around an anchor, inspired by the Latin motto Festina Lente, or Hasten Slowly. The emblem is still used by Doubleday Books. Aldous's name, meanwhile, has become associated with desktop publishing. The software company that introduced the innovative page maker program in 1985 is the Aldous Corporation, named in his honour. Berra laments the fact that Aldous is appreciated more outside of Italy than he is at home. In recent years, he has been the subject of two novels, The Rule of Four by Ian Caldwell and Dustin Thomason, published in 2004, and Robin Sloan's 2012 bestseller, Mr Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. The Rule of Four is a page-turner in the style of the Da Vinci Code. Focused on the Hypnorotomachia polyphily, an elaborately designed book that was controversial for its phallic illustrations. The Sloan novel features a secret society of bibliophiles and codebreakers that, as imagined by the author, originated with Aldous. In Italy today, his name has more mundane associations. If you ask people who he was, they might recognise his name as that of a street or their favourite restaurant or bar, says Berra, but they wouldn't be able to tell you much more. That's because, historically, topography is mistakenly considered a technique, not an art. But in reality, it is as much an art as many other Italian treasures. In Aldous's time, it also had a profound purpose, to promote reading as a more common pursuit, and to spread knowledge as widely as possible. And from the paleofuture.gizmo.com website, a story by Matt Novak. That time Australia threatened to hold Frank Sinatra hostage. Recently, Johnny Depp and his wife Amber Heard posted a bizarre apology video to Australia for not declaring their dogs when they brought them into the country. They were in violation of biosecurity laws and faced prison time. But this isn't the first time that the land down under has been hostile to American entertainers who don't show enough respect for Australia. In 1974, the country literally threatened to hold Frank Sinatra hostage. Frank Sinatra landed in Australia on July 9, 1974, and wasn't too excited about giving interviews to the press. In response, 
Australian newspapers started to write negative articles about his alleged mob ties. So after his first song at his first concert in Melbourne, he tore into the journalists, calling them pimps and hookers, with some particularly sexist language, just for good measure. We've been having a marvellous time being chased around the country for three days, Sinatra said on stage. You know we have a name in the States for their counterparts. They're called parasites, because they take and take and take and never give. I don't care what you say about any press in the world. They're bums and they're always going to be bums. Every one of them, Sinatra continued. It's the scandal man that really bugs you, drives you crazy. This two-bit work that they do, they're pimps. They're just crazy and the broads who work in the press are the hookers of the press. Need I explain that to you? I might offer them a buck and a half. I'm not sure. I once gave a chick in Washington two dollars and I overpaid her, I found out. This, as you can imagine, didn't go over well in Australia. Miriam Kleiman, Program Director for Public Affairs at the US National Archives, has a new blog detailing the Frank Sinatra brouhaha. Kleiman dug up diplomatic cables currently in the National Archives, showing just how bad things got. The union representing Australian journalists demanded an apology the day after his remarks, but Sinatra more or less told them to F off. Robert Hawke, head of the Australian Council of Trade Unions and a future Prime Minister of Australia, seized the opportunity and intensified the brouhaha by mobilising other unions. Theatrical unions cancelled Sinatra's second Melbourne concert. Transport workers' union members refused to refuel Sinatra's private jet. Hotel union members would not serve the Sinatra party or handle their luggage. So, yeah, Sinatra didn't have many options. If you don't apologise, your stay in this country could be indefinite. You won't be allowed to leave Australia unless you can walk on water, Hawke told Sinatra. Sinatra's lawyer and US diplomat, Norman Hanna, had to meet with 30 union representatives, where they negotiated for over four hours. In the end, Sinatra had to issue an apology. A funny thing happened in Australia, Sinatra told an audience after getting back to New York. I made a mistake and got off the plane. I guess the lesson that is if you visit Australia, don't piss them off. Best case scenario... They make you produce an embarrassing video about biosecurity laws. Worst case scenario, they never let you leave. And from the telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Justin Hugler. A Polish historian hopes the crumbling bunker hides the Amber Room. A Polish historian has claimed he has found the Amber Room, a long-lost Russian treasure looted by the Nazis during the Second World War. Bartolomei Plebanchik says he believed he located the missing artwork in a German wartime bunker in northeastern Poland. Radar tests showed there was a secret chamber at the back of the bunker where the treasure could be hidden, he said. 
The claim comes after two treasure hunters said they had discovered a Nazi gold train hidden in Poland last year, only for an extensive search to find no trace of it. The Amber Room was an 18th century chamber decorated entirely with panels of amber and gold that was regarded as an eighth wonder of the world. It was seized by Nazi troops during the war and then taken to the then city of Königsberg, in what is today the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. It disappeared after the war. An official Soviet investigation found that it was almost certainly destroyed either in RAF bombing or by Russian shelling. But rumours that it somehow survived have persisted, and it has long been sought by treasure hunters. Mr Pobanchik says he is almost certain he has found it. The bunker where he claims it lies is in the woods near Mameki, a small Polish village some 60 miles from the city of Kaliningrad. The historian, who is head of the Mameki Museum, said a local resident had described seeing German trucks bringing heavy cases to the bunker at the end of the war. Other residents claim to have seen Eric Koch, a notorious Nazi war criminal who was a senior official in Königsberg at the time of the Amber Room's disappearance, brought to the site from a Polish prison in the 1960s. Authorities in the nearest town of Wegelwezo said they would investigate the contents of the hidden chamber. If it's not the Amber Room, then maybe it's some other treasure, Andrei Lakowicz, the deputy mayor, told local television. Last year, two treasure hunters claimed they had located a long fable train of Nazi gold, believed to have gone missing at the end of the war, in a complex of underground tunnels near the city of Ulrich. At one point there was even a claim the train might contain the Amber Room, but an extensive survey of the tunnels by Polish scientists found no trace of the train. And if you click on the link to this article in episode 168 of the Origins podcast, there's a photograph of the bunker, a photograph of the reconstruction of the Amber Room, and a short video on Nazi gold and stolen art treasures. Goes for about 90 seconds, it says. Worth a look if you're interested in this topic. In his laboratory study in 1799, biologist George Shaw stared down at his new specimen in disbelief. The creature from the colony of New South Wales came preserved in pungent alcohol, and he carefully snipped the thick brown pelt around the creature's beak, sure he would soon reveal the stitches where an expert taxidermist had fused the bird and beast together. It was nothing like he had seen before. The creature had the body of a furry brown cat, four short legs and sharp claws over webbed feet, the tail of a beaver and the beak of a duck. From the atlasobscura.com website, why 19th century naturalists didn't believe in the platypus? By Natalie Zarelli. Shaw had met his first platypus, and did not for a moment believe it was possibly real. Still, he couldn't find any evidence it was a fake either. 
That year, in his book, The Naturalist's Miscellany, he described it as having the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck grafted on the head of a quadruped. Such an animal naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means, he confessed. The scientific world was moving through a new exciting age of discovery and debate. Biologists in Europe were close to developing a classification system for animals, and theories on how those animals came to be were brewing. The platypus with its flexible beak and venomous spurs was a crowbar in the gearwork of known science, causing debates that would not be resolved for 90 years. Shaw's suspicions were understandable. The 18th century scientific community had been burned a few times. Right before entomologist William Charlton died in 1703, he sent in a new species of butterfly, which Carl Linnaeus would later include in his influential Systema Naturae. The scientific community accepted Charlton's discovery until 1793, when another entomologist discovered ink marks carefully placed on its wings. In 1725, Dr. Johann Beringer was tricked by local boys into collecting over 2,000 false fossils and then publishing them in a book before he realised he was a subject to a hoax. What's more, fishermen had been buying expertly sewn monkey and fish taxidermy creations from East Asian artists for years, one of which became P.T. Barnum's famed Fiji Mermaid just a few decades later. Even two decades later, scientists weren't convinced that the creature was legit. Anatomist Robert Knox announced that the platypus was a freak imposter and that the scientific community felt inclined to class this rare production of nature with eastern mermaids and other works of art. The veracity of this amphibious creature of the mole kind, as New South Wales colonist David Collins described the animal in 1797, would be in doubt for many decades. The animals kept sailing in from the colonies, but even after biologists agreed the platypus was real, no one knew what to think of it. What was it exactly? A creepy furry reptile? A mammal bird? And what allows such a creature to exist in the first place? According to Anne Moyle's book Platypus, theories about the platypus developed even before specimens were shipped from Australia to Europe. Soon after setting sight on the animal in 1793, Australian Governor John Hunter declared that a promiscuous intercourse between the different sexes of all these different animals might be how the platypus had come to be. Charles Darwin's grandfather, Dr Erasmus Darwin, used this quote to bolster his budding statement of evolution in his 1796 book, Zoomania. Australia began sending platypus organs preserved in alcohol to Europe in alarming numbers. An article in International Science and National Scientific Identity writes that literally thousands of preserved and stuffed platypus and their uteri were shipped back to Britain for research. It's a miracle they still survive today after such slaughter. Anatomists of the time needed to know how to classify this animal. And of course, this provoked arguments too. While looking at his plentiful platypus organs, British anatomist Everett Home of the Royal College of Surgeons in London found that the beak was actually a sensory apparatus, and that the platypus's sexual organs were like that of an oviparous reptile, 
Home believed the platypus had to be a new kind of mammal, more closely related to birds, while others insisted it was a mammal. Anatomist J.K.W. Illiger deftly placed it in a new class called Reptantia. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck insisted it was a new non-mammal and called its class Prototheria. Lamarck had already introduced the idea of transmutationism, a controversial early theory of evolution that saw new creatures formed through adaptation, and ideas about how the platypus fit into this bounced aggressively off university walls. Anti-transmutationists of the mid-1800s felt these ideas were too simplistic for the platypus. Biologist and anti-transmutationist Richard Owen believed platypuses were mammals that gave birth through eggs, which developed viperously, and particularly disliked that transmutationist Etienne Geoffrey St. Hilaire put the platypus into a new transitional class called monotremata. Charles Darwin was also intrigued at the platypus's existence, and seeing it in an 1836 excursion to Australia may have inspired him to connect his own thoughts on evolution. Smithsonian reports that Darwin's descendant, Chris Darwin, was told from a young age about the platypus moment, a factor that made the influential scientist question creationism for the first time while in Australia. More than three decades after it was first described, biologists were still unsure if the platypus laid eggs or gave birth and nursed, which would dictate its classification. Even more complicated was that the female platypus had no teats to nurse her young. It wouldn't be until 1833 that biologist George Bennett went to Australia and discovered that the animals do indeed nurse. The female platypus actually secretes milk from its pores, which pools into ridges on the platypus's abdomen like little milk dishes for her young. In the late 1800s, Scottish zoologist William Hay Caldwell finally managed to dissect fresh platypus eggs and confirmed once and for all that the animal did in fact lay them, though the embryos partially developed inside the platypus's body, which also nursed its young. The platypus was classified as a mammal, one of five that are known to lay eggs in the order Monotremata. The platypus is no longer a source for constant debate, but the weird little creature still has a lot to teach. In fact, revisiting platypus genetics is helping biologists learn about the evolution of ribonucleic acid, or RNA, and how mammals began to pass XY chromosomes. The platypus-like birds have multiple X's and Y's versus the mammalian single pair. In 2010, the 80 toxins of the platypus venom spurs were discovered to have come from separate animal lineages. And in 2013, a giant ancient platypus tooth was found which might rearrange some of what was thought about the platypus evolution before. While some members of the public might like to see it, the original platypus specimen given to Shaw is now too delicate to be exhibited. Shaw's original sceptical cut marks are still visible on its pelt, though, which spends its afterlife in a box in the Mammal Tower of London's Natural History Museum.
And from the news.nationalgeographic.com website, the world's newest major religion. No religion. And this is by Gabe Bullard. You don't usually think of churches as going out of business, but it happens. In March, driven by parishioner deaths and lack of interest, the UK Mennonites held their last collective service. It might seem easy to predict that plain-dressing Anabaptists who follow a faith related to the Amish would become irrelevant in the age of smartphones. But this is part of a larger trend. Around the world, when asked about their feelings on religion, more and more people are responding with a meh. The religiously unaffiliated, called nuns, are growing significantly. They're the second largest religious group in North America and most of Europe. In the United States, nuns, spelt N-O-N-E-S, make up almost a quarter of the population. In the past decade, US nuns have overtaken Catholics, mainline Protestants and all followers of non-Christian faiths. A lack of religious affiliation has profound effects on how people think about death, how they teach their kids and even how they vote. There have been long predictions that religion would fade from relevancy as the world modernises. But all recent surveys are finding that it's happening startlingly fast. France will have a majority secular population soon. So will the Netherlands and New Zealand. The United Kingdom and Australia will soon lose Christian majorities. Religion is rapidly becoming less important than it's ever been, even to people who live in countries where faith has affected everything from rulers to borders to architecture. But nuns aren't inheriting the earth just yet. In many parts of the world, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, religion is growing so fast that nuns' share of the global population will actually shrink in 25 years as the world turns into what one researcher has described as the secularising West and the rapidly growing rest. The other highly secular part of the world is China, where the cultural revolution tamped down on religion for decades, while in some former communist countries, religion is on the increase. And even in the secularising West, the rash of religious freedom bills, which essentially decriminalise discrimination, are the latest front in a faith-tinged culture war in the United States that shows no sign of abetting any time soon. With the ranks of the unaffiliated, divisions run deep. Some are avowed atheists, others are agnostic, and many more simply don't care to state a preference. Organised around scepticism, towards organisations, and united by a common belief that they do not believe, Nuns as a group are just as internally complex as many religions. And as with religions, these internal contradictions could keep new followers away. If the world is at a religious precipice, then we've been moving slowly towards it for decades. Fifty years ago, Time asked in a famous headline, Is God Dead? The magazine wondered whether religion was relevant to modern life in the post-atomic age, when communism was spreading and science was explaining more about our natural world than ever before. We're still asking the same question, but the response isn't limited to yes or no, 
A chunk of the population born after the article was printed may respond to the provocative question with, God who? In Europe and North America, the unaffiliated tend to be several years younger than the population average. And 11% of Americans born after 1970 were raised in secular homes. Scientific advancement isn't just making people question God. It's also connecting those who question. It's easy to find atheist and agnostic discussion groups online, even if you come from a religious family or community. And anyone who wants the companionship that might otherwise come from church can attend a secular Sunday assembly or one of a plethora of meetups for humanists, atheists, agnostics or sceptics. The groups behind the web forums and meetings do more than give sceptics witty rejoinders for religious relatives who pressure them to go to church. They let budding agnostics know they aren't alone. But it's not easy to unite people around not believing in something. Organising atheists is like herding cats, says Stephanie Guttormson, the operations director of the Richard Dawkins Foundation, which is merging with the Centre for Inquiry. But lots of cats have found their way into the Miauri. Guttomson says the goal of her group is to organise itself out of existence. They want to normalise atheism to a point where it's so common that atheists no longer need a group to tell them it's okay not to believe or to defend their morals in the face of religious lawmakers. But it's not there yet. The Centre for Inquiry in Washington, D.C. hosts a regular happy hour called Drinking Skeptically. On a Wednesday in late March, about a dozen people showed up to faithlessly imbibe, and all but one were white. Most of the groups I've seen have been predominantly white, but I'm not sure what to attribute that to, says Kevin Douglas, the lone African-American drinker, shrugging at the demographics. He came from a religious family in New York and struggled internally with his scepticism until shortly after college. The only time he mentions having difficulty with others accepting his atheism was when he worked in Dallas, Texas, and race, he says, had little to do with it. But more typically, there is pressure from our African-American community, said Mandisa Thomas, the founder and president of the Atlanta-based Black Non-Believers Incorporated. This pressure stems from the place religion, Christianity in particular, holds in African-American history. In the abolition movement, churches became a support system for blacks. It became almost the end-all be-all for the black community for a number of years, Thomas says, adding that the civil rights movement was dominated, she says hijacked, by religious leaders. If you either reject or identify as a non-believer, you're seen as betraying your race, she says. Thomas is an outlier among non-believers for another reason. She's a woman. The secularising West is full of white men. The general US population is 46% male and 66% white, but about 68% of atheists are men and 78% are white. Atheist Alliance International has called the gender imbalance in its ranks a significant and urgent issue. There are a few theories about why people become atheists in large numbers. Some demographers attribute it to financial security, which would explain why European countries with a stronger social safety net are more secular than the United States, where poverty is more common and a medical emergency can bankrupt even the insured. 
Atheism is also tied to education, measured by academic achievement. Atheists in many places tend to have college degrees, or general knowledge of the panoply of beliefs around the world, hence theories that internet access spurs atheism. There's some evidence that official state religions drive people away from faith entirely, which could help explain why the US is more religious than most Western nations that technically have a state religion, even if it is rarely observed. The US is also home to a number of homegrown churches, Scientology, Mormonism, that might scoop up those who are disenchanted with older faiths. The social factors that promote atheism, financial security and education have long been harder to attain for women and people of colour in the United States. Around the world, the Pew Research Centre finds that women tend to be more likely to affiliate with a religion and more likely to pray and find religion important in their lives. That changes when women have more opportunities. Women who are in the labour force are more like men in religiosity. Women out of the labour force tend to be more religious, says Conrad Hackett with Pew. Part of that might be that they're part of a religious group that enforces the power of women being at home. In a Washington Post op-ed about the racial divides among atheists, black skeptics group founder Sikivu Hutchinson points out that the number of black and Latino youth with access to quality science and math education is still abysmally low. That means they have fewer economic opportunities and less exposure to a world view that does not require the presence of God. Religion has a place for women, people of colour and the poor. By its nature, secularism is open to all, but it's not always as welcoming. Some of the humanist movement's most visible figures aren't known for their respect towards women. Prominent atheists Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins have awful reputations for misogyny, as does the late Christopher Hitchens. Bill Mayer, the comedian and outspoken atheist, is no non-existent angel either. The leaders of Atheist Alliance International, Dawkins Foundation and Centre for Inquiry, who I talked to, were all well aware of the demographic shortcomings and they're working on it. All of the leaders I spoke to were women. Even people who are white, male and educated may fear the stigma of being labelled a non-believer. A white dentist at the CFI's Drinking Skeptically event didn't want to go on record out of fear that patients wouldn't want an atheist working on their teeth. We have this stigma that we're combative, that we're arrogant, that we just want to provoke religious people, Thomas with Black Non-Believers Inc. says. She's working on changing that and increasing the visibility of non-believers of colour too. Thompson believes the demographics of nuns don't accurately reflect the number and diversity of non-believers. It just shows who is comfortable enough to say they don't believe out loud. There are many more people of colour. There are many more women who identify as atheists, she says. There are many people who attend church who are still atheists. What's sometimes called the new atheism picked up in the mid-2000s? These were the years of war when Islam was painted as a threat and Christianity infused US policy abroad and domestically, most visibly in faith-based ballot initiatives against same-sex marriage. In the US, many state legislators are still using a narrow interpretation of Christian morals to deny services to gay people 
and appropriate restrooms to people who are transgender. But the national backlash to religious legislation has become faster and fiercer than ever before. Europeans seem set on addressing Islamophobia and the forces that could create tension with the rapidly growing rest. As compared to past campaign seasons, religion is taking a back seat in this year's US presidential election. Donald Trump is not outwardly religious, and his attraction of evangelical voters has raised questions about the longevity and the motives of the religious right. Hillary Clinton has said, Advertising about faith doesn't come naturally to me. And Bernie Sanders is not actively involved in a religion. Their reticence about religion reflects the second largest religious group in the country they hope to run. Aside from Ted Cruz, the leading candidates just aren't up for talking about religion. The number of Americans who seek divine intervention in the voting booth seems to be shrinking. For all the work secular groups do to promote acceptance of non-believers, perhaps nothing will be as effective as apathy plus time. As the secular millennials grow up and have children of their own, the only Sunday morning tradition they may pass down is one everyone in the world can agree on. Brunch. The bandwidth for the Origins podcast is provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. Don't forget we have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul And as many of you would already know, I do another podcast called Mysteries Abound, and that's also available at TalkShoe or iTunes or wherever you get the feed for this podcast. And so now to our final story to bring the podcast to a close. Legend says that brewing tea dates back to around 2737 BC, when tea leaves fell into the water, being boiled for Emperor Shenong of China. There does not appear to be any hard evidence of tea being discovered this way, but evidence we do have suggests that brewing tea did indeed likely start in China, first as part of a medicinal elixir. From the www.todayifoundout.com website, an article by Sarah Stone. The truth about the surprisingly recent invention of the tea bag, and the women who really invented it. The first documented reference to this is found during the Shang Dynasty, 1600 BC to 1046 BC. By the Qin Dynasty in the 3rd century BC, it had become a relatively popular drink using just the tea, Camellia sinensis, rather than mixed with other things, as seems to have been common when used medicinally. From the beginning until the early 20th century, very little innovation came about in terms of the common method of brewing tea. This all changed in 1901. Contrary to popular belief, and what every single tea manufacturer I could find said on their websites, and many a tea history book and paper consulted also stated, 
It was not a tea merchant, Thomas Sullivan, who invented the tea bag in 1908. While he did, probably independently, given his reported design was quite inferior to the original, invent a tea bag that year, he was beat out by about seven years by Roberta C. Lawson and Mary Malaren of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. On June 26, 1901, the two intrepid women filed a patent for a rather unique, at the time, tea leaf holder that is remarkably similar to the modern tea bag. They had identified an issue with the way tea had been commonly brewed for thousands of years. In their own words, the traditional method of having to brew a whole pot at a time involves the use of considerable quantity of tea leaves to prepare the desired supply of tea, and the tea, if not used directly, soon becomes stale or wanting in freshness, and therefore unsatisfactory, and frequently a large portion of the tea thus prepared and not used directly has to be thrown away, thus involving much waste and corresponding expense. Thus they invented an open-meshed woven cotton bag, folded over upon itself and stitched along its sides, forming a pocket-like construction, having a flap at its open end, with the flap at the upper end folded down over the top end of the pocket and enclosed. A small portion of tea was then contained inside the enclosed cotton mesh bag and allowed the preparer to place it in a cup, and having poured water thereupon to produce only a cup of tea fresh for immediate use. By this means only so much of tea leaves is used as required for the single cup of tea, and thereby a cup of fresh, fragrant tea is prepared. About two years after the ladies filed their patent, it was granted on March 24, 1903. However, seemingly they were unsuccessful at bringing this to market, at least on any widespread scale that would have registered in documented history. This brings us to Thomas Sullivan. Sullivan worked as a tea importer in New York when he supposedly, accidentally, invented tea bags in 1908. The story goes that Sullivan began sending small silk bags containing samples of various forms of tea he sold to his customers as a way of encouraging sales. The accident part is that a number of those people whom he sent the bags of tea to decided to use the bag as something of a tea infuser rather than opening the bags up and brewing the tea normally. As with Lawson and Malaren's aforementioned invention, this allowed a person to make a single cup of tea rather than an entire pot and made for much more convenient clean-up when done, simply toss the bag. No need to clean out all the tea leaves from the pot and strainer or infuser. The little marketing campaign worked and orders started rolling in, which Sullivan initially filed via standard containers of loose-leaf tea. Customers who had used the bag as infusers complained, and Sullivan soon began offering his tea once again in bags. However, silk bags weren't ideal for steeping standard loose-leaf tea, due to being a little too fine and expensive for a single serve. He thus replaced the silk of the original sample bags with gauze, and then further tweaked things for better steeping by filling the tea bags with fannings, the broken tea stalks, and tea dust left over from the processing of tea. 
Sullivan then began heavily marking his little invention and the tea bag was on its way to becoming a household staple. How much of this story is true is difficult to discern. While it does appear there was a tea merchant named Thomas Sullivan who helped popularise selling tea in single-serve bags, as well as in larger tea bags for brewing whole pots, there seems to be little in the way of documented evidence backing up the individual bits of the oft-repeated story. Whatever the case, we do know that commercial tea bags in the early days were not, on the whole, as good as Roberta Lawson and Mary Malaren's original design, other than perhaps the later addition of a string to pull the bags out of the hot water when steeping was complete. You see, early bags often use glue to seal the tea in, rather than a folded sewn bag. This glue then steeped along with the tea, greatly affecting the flavour. Various early fabrics used also negatively impacted the taste. However, despite many companies' early designs being less than ideal at producing the desired taste, convenience won out and partially thanks to World War I, with certain country soldiers being given tea bags as part of their rations, the tea bag began to rise in popularity significantly by and then during the 1920s. However, while the Americans relatively quickly embraced the tea bag, the British viewed the invention with scepticism and a bit of upturned noses. Shortages of the materials used to make tea bags during World War II also helped keep the tea bag unpopular in the UK, despite the convenience factor, and that by this time the tea bag was mostly perfected in terms of limiting its influence on the taste of the tea. However, when the 1950s hit, when products making common household tasks easier began becoming all the rage, the tea bag saw a huge surge in popularity and for the first time started gaining traction in the UK. By the late 1950s, the tea bag had gone from virtually unavailable in the UK to controlling about 3% of the market, beginning its slow and steady climb. As of 2008, tea bags made up 96% of the tea market in the UK, a total surprisingly more than in the United States around the same time, where tea bags only held a 90% share versus loose leaf tea. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 168 of the Origins podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show, and until next time, whether it be an Origins podcast or a Mysteries Abound podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now, and keep well, everyone.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.